Hey there, and welcome to the Smart and Simple Matters show with your host, Joel Zeslovsky. Let's find out together how to be alive and how to help people wake the heck up and what happens when we do. This is episode number 90. Howdy, hey there. I am so glad you're with me for this lovely episode. You may be thinking, how do I know it's lovely? Well, I edited it myself and I was an active participant in the conversation. So uh, let's just say I've heard this one before. Yeah, it's pretty nifty. We are at episode 90, That is 10 away from the big 100, if I did my math right. And it's especially nifty that I have your time and attention. Maybe it's the first time, maybe it's the 90th time. Either way, I am grateful for you. The show today does not have any new Patreon patrons since the last episode. Ain't no thing. Not worried about it. Uh, Our current patrons, still smiling. I'm still smiling. The world seems to be smiling with us. And as always, this episode is brought to you by my voice and Patreon supporters because I don't have sponsors. Instead, I just have you. Woohoo! So consider showing your support for me, this show, and our community at valueofsimple.com slash Patreon. Now, here's some extra channeled love to Crystal, who left this iTunes review for the show earlier this month. She wrote, This podcast is the best. I listen to it every time I'm not sure what to do, and it always offers ideas to solve problems based on good information and sound judgment. Crystal, I receive that both personally and on behalf of the awesome folks who listen to the show. Thank you. Uh, You might like to know that any sound judgment you find in this show is probably someone else's doing. Because, oh, I need a director of common sense in pretty much everything I do. Maybe. Maybe that will change with something mighty fancy schmancy I've been cooking up for you and the rest of the Smart and Simple Matters crew. This episode is being published on December 28th, 2015. A mere two weeks from when I fully transitioned my online home from valueofsimple.com to joelzeslowski.com. Yeah, yeah, my physical landscape, uh, those spreadsheets, they may be minimalist, but my website, no, decidedly not minimalist. It's taken about six months of prep to open the door to you and invite you in to my new home on January 11th, 2016, The next episode of this podcast will show you around the joint. Check this out. Ooh, I think you'll appreciate this. Point out the subtle interior design and explain why it took me four years to have a website that didn't make you want to run screaming when you viewed it with a mobile device. I hope you're excited because I'm excited. And maybe I may even have enough excitement for all of us. Not that it's a contest or anything. I'm sure you're mighty excited as well. Please, if you are, tell me. Tell me what you're excited about or after you viewed it on January 11th or later. Today, let's live in the present, though. Let's explore what it means to be alive. Not in some mysterious what incarnation does that actually mean kind of way. Today is about how to be alive in a Colin Bevan kind of way, who happens to be my guest for this groovy episode and just so happens to have a book titled How to Be Alive coming out on January 5, 2016. Colin's last book was titled No Impact Man, and yes, he is the No Impact Man, the same guy from the popular documentary bearing that title. But ooh, you're about to find out for yourself, he is so much more than that. Colin and I, we spoke about a gaggle of topics, which a gaggle, I'm told that that's greater than or equal to five items or equal to eight 50 pound bags of salt. Yeah, that sounds right. (laughs) But getting serious here, for instance, you're going to learn about the false conflict between being self-centered and generous, how to save yourself to save the world and save the world to save yourself. 
what a life quester is and how to become one, two major blocks that stop us from making positive change in the world, and of course, how to be alive without any lessons in biology. I know, I know that sounds pretty dang good, but what does it actually mean? You're about to find out, because here we go. I am excited right now, I tell you. That's because my guest for this episode is a giant catalyst to help people take environmental issues, consumerism, and quality of life seriously, and often personally. His name is Colin Bevan, and to some, he's better known as No Impact Man. To me, he's an inspiring multimedia creator with an upcoming book, How to Be Alive, a guide to the kind of happiness that helps the world. Wow, I'm stoked to see that get into the world's hands. Uh, He has been featured in places like the Colbert Report, and he hangs out generally in New York City, although spends a lot of time in other places. He's a Dharma teacher and just a dynamite all-around guy. Colin, I just want to say welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much, Joel, and thanks for that really kind introduction. Yeah, well, you're a very kind, generous man, and hopefully people will get that pretty quick. And I think we will. Actually, we're going to start where we normally start an episode, which is something I call the seeds of awesomeness, so that people can get a better understanding of how you came to be the man that you are. Can you tell us something about your environment growing up, or maybe even one or two experiences that you had as a youth that's helped shape who you've become? I think two things probably. Um, my parents were split, and um, so I split my time between a countryside, a seaside town, a lovely seaside town called Westport, Massachusetts, which is in the tucked into the southeast corner of the state, um, and um, beautiful agricultural town. Um, and I spent a lot of my time um, outdoors and connecting to nature in various ways, and at the same time. I spent time in New York where my dad lived for the, worked for the United Nations. Um, and so we traveled a lot and I um, experienced lots of different cultures and different types of people and uh, saw poverty and suffering and incredible love and, and wonder from all sorts of different backgrounds. Um, and also all of my family worked. My father worked for the United Nations. My mother was a social worker. My grandfather was a civil servant. So um, all of my family worked in some sort of form of public service. So you have all these people who are very other-oriented and giving folks. Did you have, um, did that immediately rub off on you? Or uh, growing up, did you have the impulses of, selfishness and self-centeredness and it's all about me and who cares about the rest of the world that most of the rest of us did or did you like the current mindset that you have right now have you just generally evolved into what you are or i'm gonna i tell you before even i even answer your question i'm gonna unpack it because unpack let's do it (laughs) because you said did i grow up other oriented and I, i think this is a really important issue because there's there's this tension like should I be self-oriented should I be selfish and take care of myself and make sure that I'm safe and secure and that I'm happy or should I be other oriented and sacrifice my own happiness and security for the sake of others and so I actually I I I I don't like the idea of self-oriented or other oriented I like us oriented so I say so a, a, a little phrase that I love is how should I run my life? Not just for me. It doesn't mean for me or not for me because there's no, there doesn't have to be a, my, what I really love is actually that the the path of the good life brings for me and for you together. Do you see what I mean? I do. And, um, so if there was some thing that occurred in my life, I think when I was young, um, I, I had entrepreneurial inclinations um, I had the inclination to be a writer, and I also had the inclination to be of service. And for me, the really hard thing was reconciling those two, because we have in our culture this idea that you you either sacrifice yourself for everybody else, or you, I call it the monk and the merchant uh, 
paradox. You can either be a monk, you sacrifice yourself for others, or you can be a merchant, you're really selfish and you only care about um, yourself, right? Um, and so what I had was this kind of tension, like which, which route should I take? Um, and, and that's kind of what I've grown up into, understanding that there doesn't have to be a difference between the two. That there's a path where I get to be myself, where I, I call it saving yourself to save the world and saving the world to save yourself. Okay, well, saving the world to save yourself and saving yourself to save the world. That's right. I, I feel like we need further unpacking because I don't, I mean, I get it on an intellectual level, but I'm not getting it here in my heart quite yet. Can you just elaborate on that a little? So everybody, each one of us has to elaborate on this for themselves. But the question is, the, the, the deep question for me has always been, uh, why was I born? Like, what am I? What's my purpose? Why am I alive? And um, I'm sure you've, you know, as a, as a member of the minimalism and the simplicity movement, and you've examined these questions deeply, like, why, what's the purpose of being here? Like, so, uh, the stuff, if, when we die, the stuff is going to go. Even the feeling of happiness is going to go. So, so what actually am I, what am I at root? What's, what's, what's the fundamental part of me? And the fundamental part of me is that I'm not disconnected from us. And so that means that, and that's a truth, right? Fundamental, it's, it's an illusion that we're separate from each other. And the fundamental truth is that we're connected. And in order for me to feel fulfilled and meaningful and happy, what I have to do is live in line with the truth. So what that means is that for me to feel fulfilled and happy means to live in line with the truth. And as long as I'm, if I'm sacrificing myself for others, or if I'm sacrificing others for myself, I'm never going to be fully comfortable and feel fully authentic because it's not in line with the truth of our connectedness. So it turns out that if I pursue who I am and take care of myself and find out what my passions are and want to give for, to the world, what I want to give to the world, that makes me feel fulfilled. Mm -hmm. um, and on the other hand, if I fully give to the world, that actually provides the space for me to figure out who I am, what my gifts are. So, so this kind of path of saving yourself, by saving yourself, I mean living in line with who you really are to save the world, which is, um, and saving the world to save yourself means that there's this kind of path where we get to, we get to do both and it's actually the, it's actually um, a path that's most in line with our own natures. Yeah. With your Does own that, truth. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Does that touch, do you get that in your heart yes, now? Yes, okay. I do. Let's go back to the truth for a moment, though, because the last conversation I had with a guy named Toku McCree, we talked a bit about this, and I, I guess it's just coming up more and more, at least in the circles that I run in, like, what's the truth? What's the, what's the universal truth that we can have? So when you say the truth, are you talking about your own personal truth that you've come to acknowledge, or are you talking about something that extends even beyond humanity into you know, the, the greater part of the universe? Uh, for example, when I talked to Toku, he said that the universal truth for him is love. Right. And he elaborated on it. Do you have something similar? Or, or when you talk about the truth or your truth? So, so truth, the fundamental truth at the moment for me is that I'm talking to you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's the that's the truth right here and right now. Yep, it's irrefutable. But I have a lot of ideas about the truth too, right? So love is an idea about it. it's a really lovely idea, but it's also an idea about the truth. And I can be you can become attached to the idea of love also. Like I, I'm gonna act out of love. And I've noticed by the way that you're not acting out of love. So suddenly my ability to love you goes away. So, so we can attach to our ideas. All sorts of things can happen when we attach to our ideas of truth. So when I say truth, I actually say it as a provocative term to make people say, what do you mean by truth? But I have this kind of fundamental belief that we are all complete and that we all have a certain amount of, let's say, appropriateness or responsibility within us, the ability, the ability to respond, but that we sometimes uh, cover up our ability to respond or to be appropriate in the face of the suffering that we see around us 
with our ideas about what's happening. I must pursue this desire. I'll be happier if I just have another car. I'll be, I'll be happier if you just behave the way that I think that you should, even if what I think you should do is help the world, you know. Um, I'll just be happier if things are some other way than the way they are now. That's illusion. What's truth is that you and I are talking right now. And if I can bring my full self to the truth of the fact that you and I are talking right now and trust in my authentic self, then I will respond in the most appropriate appropriate way that that is not just for me. Yeah. That's well, consider me happily provoked. Uh, and I notice <laughs> that you you are quite good at provoking people uh, on the spiritual side, on the political side. Um, when you all started with No Impact Man, I think that's how most people, if they know your name, they're like, oh, yeah. And I know you frequently go by AKA No Impact Man because right. some people know you better than that. You've been a provocateur for a long time now. And maybe we'll talk a little bit about No Impact Man. You're so much more than that, which is one of the reasons why I was so excited to talk to you. Uh, and just when you came, you've been on my radar for literally years, although I've only been closely paying attention to what you represent, the kind of good that you do in the world for the last six, eight months or so. There was a blog post that you wrote on your website. Where is it? Uh, where I am going in my work and blog and how you can help, where you explain to people, hey, I'm not just the guy who does this thing with this stuff. There's so much more. This contribution-rich life, this one of fulfillment that you keep talking about, helping people. Actually, let's, let's talk a little bit about this concept of helping people play a more active role in their own lives. What does that mean to you? Or how should I conceptualize in my head when it comes to being more active in my own life or in helping other people? When people ask me, what's my, what's my mission? I feel like I have so many missions, but the really short version is that my mission is, help, is to help wake people up to the fact that they have the power to change their own lives and the lives of the people around them and the lives of the world around them, that we have agency and that we have power. And, 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 and what, it, so what it means to be engaged, it, de- it depends on each of us. So some of us are really good at math. So, um, to be engaged is not to necessarily say, um, some of us are good at math and some of us are good at gardening. Now, if you, let's say you think that an important part of helping this world is, is, um, uh, local farms and agriculture, but you're good at math. That doesn't mean that you must go to the garden and garden all the time. It means that you find some way to engage your talent at math in service of what you believe in, which is local farming. So maybe you're going to go and be an accountant on an important farm or or something like that. Similarly, um, if you're good at gardening, then it does not mean that you should be crunching numbers for the sake of the world, right? So to engage means to actually wake up to who you are and wake up to your relationship to the world and to wake up to where the world is. So when we engage, we say to ourselves, what is the truth of me? Like, how do I actually be the truth of me as opposed to trying to fit myself into some mold, right? And what is the truth of the world, which... I would say at this particular stage is a lot of a lot of suffering in many realms between the wars, between climate change, between income inequality, between the police shooting our our own citizens, um, Black Lives Matter and stuff like there's a lot of suffering in the world. So who am I? Who is the world? How do I fit the two together? And engaging means to actually wake up to those big questions. I I was brought up so many people. When I, when I was tortured, I was tortured by this question. Yeah. What am I? What am I supposed to do in the world? And I think part of that, there were a couple of, I had a baby brother who died and I had an uncle who committed suicide. So from very early in my childhood, I was, I was aware of the lack of permanence. And so I was tortured by these questions. Who am I? And, so, and, and what am I? And what's going to happen when I die? And what's my, you know, all these big questions. When really what you're told is get good grades in school go to college, um, get a mortgage, find a partner, have some kids, save for retirement. You know, all of, I was just I like, checked all those boxes too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I was like, why, what though? But people are dying, people die. So what's the, you know, ah, so, uh, what about after? 
So I was tortured by these questions. And what I kept being told is you'll never answer those questions. So put them away. Hmm. To be engaged means to, to embrace those questions. Because when we embrace those questions, they, we, we may not find a conceptual answer, but it helps us to reject a lot of conceptual answers like get a job, go to college, um, if they're not appropriate to, to it. That tells us to, to less attach to those answers and actually be able to engage in who we are in the world around us. That's, want, so wake up. That's what it is. Yeah. Well, so you mentioned, I mean, you've personally experienced a lot of suffering and you've seen others suffer around the world, but you also mentioned the impermanence of things. Yes. And for me, that helps. I mean, I experience suffering from, uh, well, a a lot in different ways, whether it's emotional or spiritual, uh, either for me or being too compassionate and letting others kind of project their suffering onto me, which every once in a while I'm a little too happy to accept. Remembering that there's impermanence in the suffering and that it comes and it goes, but it always goes. It's never going to stay permanently. And one of the things that I also want to talk to you about is even within the suffering, regardless of where you are in the world, uh, tell me if I'm wrong here, but I get the sense from reading your work that you feel that everybody has the potential to lead a good life the way that they define it. And this concept of the good life or a good life, both for you and for us and for the rest of the world, is a pretty powerful one. How do you conceptualize a a good life or what, maybe let me rephrase that, what are the facets, do you have some kind of pillars that represent a good life from your perspective? I think, let's be careful first of all about everybody has the capacity to lead a a good life because um, it's, it's not that... It's not that it's it's not that it's not true in a certain way, but it can be. Those kinds of words can be misinterpreted and 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 be seen as kind of elitist, like that that everybody has the capacity to lead a good life. Then leads us can can if we're not careful lead us to a place to saying, well, then those who are poverty stricken should just pull them up by their own bootstraps because they have the capacity to lead a good life. I think what is better to say is this is, is for each of us. We, we always have to be careful with our everybody's that that's, that's one thing. Everybody's but, a lot of people. Well, 7.3 yeah. billion approximately. And that's, that's right. pretty sweeping. Yeah, that's right. And, so, and some people are suffering are in so much suffering that they may never, they may never get a good life. So I think what might be better to say is that um, for those of us who, who have, the option of having the kind of life that they will call the good life, that to get their means helping other people get a good life. Like my good life depends upon, there's no such thing. I cannot, you know, in, in Buddhism, in the Mahayana tradition, one of the things we say is that nobody gets to nirvana until everybody gets to nirvana. And, and, and that's a fundamental truth. If you think about it, it's, it's like if you imagine the surface of a pond, right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter how still you are on the surface of the pond. If, if there's turbulence in another part of the pond, you're still going to be subject to the ripples, right? So similarly, as long as um, there is suffering in anybody else around the world, I'm not going to be completely at peace. This is a fundamental truth of our inter- interconnectedness. Another way to put it is, you can't have a party by yourself, you know? It's not a party. You can't have a good laugh at a joke unless other people are laughing too. Mm-hmm. So the, the fundamental in How to Be Alive, my book, what, one of the things that I look at that's fundamental about having a good life are four things, okay? One, one is security. Now, security is both, psycho, it's both psychological and physical, right? But some people, some people are, feel secure, you know, on $40,000 a year. Some people feel secure on $20,000 a year. Some people feel secure on $80,000 a year. The, the truth of the matter is you need a roof over your head, or, or at least you need to feel sheltered. You need food. Um, some people then need a, feel they need way more to feel secure, in which case they have some psychological work to do because they're, they're in fear. But anyway, physical security is one thing we need for the good life. 
And the next thing that we need, once we have that... Can I ask you, can I pause for a second here? Sure. And ask you about security? So the, yeah. you, you mentioned physical security, and then you also mentioned dollar amounts, financial security. Right. Do you have... I, I struggle with this, too, is because when I think of security, I tend to think of social security, not as in like the Social Security Administration of America. Social security is in, do I have enough connections, community resources from my social capital in my life. That is my primary source of capital and my primary source of well-being and security. Why do people mostly think about security in terms of how much money they have in the bank as opposed to how vibrant their local community is? Well, you know, I think you're really smart um, to think that way, um, not to be patronizing, but, 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 but we, we, we can go one, one of two ways. I get everything for myself through bringing money to me, or I have so many connections and interconnections, that is to say, yes. not just friends, but yes. friends who are friends with each other. So it's a net, right? That's, it's a strong net of social connection. So you can think all my goodness comes from me by myself earning a lot of money, or all my goodness comes from um, the net of connections that I have, which may, you know, through the net of connections, you may never have a mansion who wants a mansion anyway, but you never may, but you will always have a couch to sleep on. Mm. Right. That, that's really smart. And I'm glad you interrupted me to say that because that's a major point of my work that our security doesn't come necessarily. Plus, not only that, the financial system, as we know, does seem to be teetering on the brink and could fall apart at any moment. And all of a sudden, a million dollars can be, could become worth about 50 cents. <laughs> But the social connection will never, it will never go away. Okay, um, thank you for that. Yes. Sorry, if you, if you want to, you said there are four items here. The first right. one was security. What's number so, two? So one's security. One is autonomy. A feeling that, a feeling, and this, by what I'm about to say, by the way, is not original to me. It comes from the work of a man named um, Ed Detchy and, and, and Michael Ryan, who, who are the founders of something called self-determination theory, which is, if you, you can Google that self-determination theory and it's great work. And they wrote a book together called um, Why We Do What We Do. Anyway, so the second thing is autonomy, which is the feeling that what I do comes from within myself and is authentic to myself. I don't do it because you told me to. I don't do it because I'll get some reward for doing it. It's just it comes from someplace within me, right? That's autonomy. Um, the, the next one is the feeling of confidence that Actually, what I do has some effect on the world. It's, it's, not, it's not so trivially easy as to make me think like anybody can do that. And it's not so difficult as to make me feel like I'm failing, but that, 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 but that I, I'm able to uh, commit to challenges that challenge me and from which I learn and I get to feel like I'm actually making a difference. And then the third one is relatedness, which is actually what you just talked to, what we just talked about, interconnection, the, the relatedness to others and this feeling that my autonomy, my, my authentic actions um, that are competent, meaning that are effective, are autonomous and effective in service to other people. So that, you know, those things, I would argue, um, having the freedom to act from my deepest self in a way that's effective for the people and world that I care about um, and to feel safe while I do it. That for me is the definition of the good life. Okay. Now there, there's other things that some people, we have our karma, that is to say we have our preferences. So some people need to be in a warm climate. Some people want to, would rather be in a cool climate. Some people, even in spite of the fact that you and I know that the dollar amount is not the most important, some people just can't feel safe without a certain dollar amount, even though you and I can feel safe with a much lower dollar amount. And it's just karma. They, for whatever reason, they've grown up in the culture or through their parents and they need a certain amount of money. So there are some preferences too. So creating the conditions that support that autonomy, that competence and that relatedness, that's all important too. So, so, but, but all taken together, that's what I would call the good life. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about some of the ways the competence was the third one that you talked about here. The ability to affect change, the confidence to know that you can accept challenges, whether you've thrown down your own gauntlet or someone else has thrown down your own gauntlet. 
We'll get back to how to be alive because there's a lot to talk about there. But I also want people to realize, um, as you've been saying in your work, that you are so much more than just a single person who has a single message. No Impact Project, noimpactproject.org. I don't know how active you are in that right now. I can see that with that relatedness. I mean, I go to the website and I see tons of partners who are in this broad alliance with you to make less of an impact on the world. So if... I, and I just wanted to throw this out there because I want people to understand directly through you or indirectly through us in this conversation and some of the thoughts that they're having right now, there are direct steps that they can take right now. Would you mind just briefly talking about noimpactproject.org and how you've used that as a tool to help people have more of that interconnectedness, maybe that greater sense of autonomy? So No Impact Project arises out of my last book, No Impact Man. Um, and No Impact Man was um, a year that I spent um, with my family living as environmentally as possible in New York City. And I, when I say living as environmentally as possible, I don't mean that we um, recycled better. We didn't buy anything that caused us to make anything that we had to throw away, including recycled stuff. You know, so no trash at all, recycled or otherwise. Uh, no carbon-producing transportation no, at, for six months, actually no electricity because we couldn't get renewably powered electricity. And meanwhile, at the same time, um, doing uh, not just reducing our negative impact, but increasing our positive impact by volunteering to do things to help the environment. So that was the No Impact Man project. And, and there's a book and film both by the same pro- title, No Impact Man. And somehow No Impact Man hit this cultural nerve. It just completely... Way before I even finished writing the book, just as I was doing the project, it hit a nerve and there was all this press interest and I had a blog um, that blew up. Um, And people were really interested. And as a result, I founded this nonprofit called noimpactproject.org because people kept saying, well, what can I do? What can I do? And so the the flagship program of uh, noimpactproject.org is called No Impact Week. And basically, it's a week, um, it's, a, it's an immersive educational experience that we run largely in organizations. I mean, you can, do it, you can do it yourself. You can download the handbook and do it yourself. But mostly, we, we run it in existing organizational communities, um, and they live as no impact as possible over the course of a week. It's structured, so there's lots of instructions about how to do it. Can you give um, us a couple of examples? What does that look like? What does that so, feel like over the course of the week? So it, you move through the week, like the first day of the week is no buying anything. It starts on Sunday. No buying anything new on Sunday. That's the first thing. And, and when you start, so each day builds on itself. So you start on Sunday, and the challenge is just don't buy anything new. Now that no buy anything, don't buy anything new, then keeps going through the rest of the week. Sure. I have to still do that on Monday in addition to another item. That's, that's right. Okay. Then Monday comes and um, it's don't make any trash. Um, so, so even so, it's not just not about buying anything new, but it actually becomes don't buy anything in packaging. Mm-hmm. Then Tuesday comes and it's buy only local food, which means buy only food that's been produced within 250 miles. And then Wednesday comes and it's questing for sustainable transportation. Can you walk? Can you bike? Can you use mass transit? Et cetera, et cetera, through the week, and it builds through till the last. Day of the week is the, a week later on the Sunday, which we call Eco Sabbath, which is don't buy anything, don't go anywhere, don't turn the lights on, just relax. You know, like actual Sabbath is like yeah. be, be be the created, not the creator, for one day. Um, and it's 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 challenging, and it's meant to be challenging. And the point is not to do it perfectly, but one to, in a way, to become a minimalist or a, or, or, or a simple living person for a week. Um, and, and so people call it a retreat from consumerdom to actually ask yourself, hey, what's actually important in my life? And two, to see, to, to not to feel this sense of like, I'm feeling as a person because I can't do this, but to see how the whole the reason why it's hard for one person to do that is because the whole cultural current, the systemic current, is unsustainable. And so it's to actually see how the systems stop us as individuals from living how we want to live. Hmm. And so encourage us then to get involved in being civically engaged in changing the system. So in other words, you know, 
why should I have to turn all my lights off in order to not burn carbon to get electricity? You know, the culture should be providing electricity that's sustainably generated, right? So if I find it hard, then that means that, the, that, that for me to be able to do it, um, I have to get involved in the movement of people that are trying to change how we generate our power. And, and by the way, that's also saving myself to save the world and saving the world to save myself, yeah. right? You cover that question great in your TEDx talk, which I'll link to in the show notes as well. Um, there's all kinds of good riffs about energy, what land use. I, we probably don't have time to talk about it, but the role of local community and how you immerse yourself in it, which I am such a huge advocate of too. I don't know if I'm sensing a theme. Tell me if I'm wrong. How can I help? You were saying people were constantly coming to you after no impact, man. How can I help? How can I help? That was just a common refrain that you got all the time. At first, I thought, just knowing what I knew about you, which was rather limited, like, he's got this great thing going on, every, this all, all this no-impact stuff, like, why write How to Be Alive? But I guess I'm starting to get a sense of, this is just an extension of answering the question, what can I do? This book, this new book that's coming out on January 5th, 2016, so just a week after we publish this episode, which... I hope people are going to check it out. Uh, just looking at what I've seen and hearing you talk about and reading the Amazon description, wow. Is that really what it boils down to, that you felt compelled to write this book as a logical next step to answering the question, what can I do? Absolutely. Because what happened is everywhere I went, I, so No Impact Man, the book in the field came out and boom, like I was asked to go and speak here and there and at this school and this college, at this business here. And everybody's like, well, what can I do? And, and, and let me, let me give you an example. One time, or, or sometimes it was, what can I do? And sometimes it was like, how can I be like you? And I think that's a dangerous question. How can I be like you? Because what, if you heard the expression, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him, that's like no. That's a new one. Okay, so that's a that's a Zen Buddhist expression, which means if you think that there's a guru outside of yourself, kill it because hmm. the guru is within you. So as soon as we start saying, like, when I start saying, "How can I be like Gandhi?" or "How can I be like Martin Luther King?" or "How can I be like any hero?" Um, I'm actually headed um, a, not towards true north. The real question is, how can I be like me? But even more like me. Like, like we talked about before, in line with the truth of my nature, which is interconnected, right? So first of all, so this question, how can I be more like you, kept coming up. But then the other thing was, even when they said, how can I be more like you? I said, well, you could do compost. Well, I don't want to do compost. And besides, in other words, being like me doesn't fit with other people's situations, right? It doesn't fit. Like, it doesn't fit. Being like me would not fit with your life. Like, I'm me. And it fits perfectly with my life to be me. <laughs> That's good to hear you say. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but it won't fit like you. So the real question, the question that the, the, the question is how can I help? Right? Now, um, there's I means how how can I with my circumstances and my situation and my preferences fit to the world situation? And so so for example, uh, this one one time I was at a talk and this third grade teacher said raised her hand and she said, I really care about the environment and I've been working on the recycling on my town and I teach third grade. How, she said to me, she said, how do I teach my third graders about the importance of recycling? And I was like, well, I don't, I don't know how to teach children <laughs> and I don't know about the recycling in this, in your town. But could anybody... Was that a British here? accent that you just attempted right there? Well, I, you know, I lived in the UK for 10 years, so it comes uh, out sometimes. Okay, I like it. So I said, I don't know how to teach third grade children, and I don't need, know how about the recycling in your town. So I said, could anybody here who teaches third grade children and knows about recycling in your town please raise their hand? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, it was her, right? So I said, don't, don't ask me. Like, ask yourself, how can you help? So as I was going around the world and people are, how can I help? How can I fit who I am? Which they didn't know. But the real question is, how can I fit who I am to the suffering that I see in the world? So How to Be Alive, the book, is about that. It's not about how to become no impact man. It's about how to figure out who you are in relation. You might not even, you know, environment may not be your main concern. 
race issues might be your main concern or elder issues might be your concern or child issues or animal issues or income disparity might be your main concern, the thing that really speaks to you. How to be alive is about how do you build relationships with the world that connect who you are and your passions with the problems that concern you. So yes, it is, this book was totally an answer to the question that people kept asking me. Yeah. Has this third grade teacher that you were talking about, you have this concept in the book of a life quester. Mm-hmm. And I know you give a lot of different examples of these real life life questers. Do you, do you have any interaction with them? Is this third grade teacher now one of the life questers? Or do you, do you have others that you hold up and say, see, see, look, look what can happen? Well, she, the third grade teacher definitely lives on because I've mentioned to her in many interviews. And so okay. she's, she's immortal now. All right. But, but she, she's not actually mentioned the book, but many other what I call life questers are. Um, and uh, a life quester, by the way, is, is it's, a, it's a phrase that I... Um, that I termed, which means someone who's questing for the good life, a life quester, someone who's willing to, who's realizing that our standard approaches to life, go to college, get a job, get a house, buy a lot of stuff, you know, go on cruises for, for your retirement if you don't have a heart attack first, that those standard life approaches um, are breaking down because they don't work for us personally and they're also a lot of a sense harming the world around us, right? So a life quester is somebody that's willing to break away from those standard approaches and is looking, looking for new approaches based on who they actually are. And, and in How to Be Alive, there are many, many stories um, of, of a bunch of different... Sh- shall I tell you a couple of... There, there's a couple of... Let's start with one. Yeah, okay. So um, I think I'll tell you the story of my, my friend, Rabbi Stephen Greenberg. He obviously is Jewish. And he grew up in Ohio. Orthodox Judaism called to him as as a teenager. And um, he was really passionate about, he he loved, you know, the Talmudic arguments and he loved the philosophizing and he loved everything about Orthodox Judaism and, 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 and trained to become a rabbi. And then as he was training to become a rabbi, he was in Jerusalem, he woke up one morning and next door heard um, the shower going and he knew that a certain other male student was in the shower and um, he was excited by that fact. And he suddenly had this realization that all his life he'd been excited by men and not by women. Hmm. And he had never even heard the word gay actually growing up. He'd heard the word faggot, but he thought that faggot just meant that somebody who wasn't good at sports, (laughs) right? So... He was really fight. He was at that stage really frightened by his own what he, what he was realizing was his own sexuality, and also or the Orthodox Judaism. I, and I should say I'm not commenting about Orthodox Judaism because I'm not Jewish. So, but his experience. I I was. I mean, I grew up Jewish, conservative okay. Judaism, and I've okay. been to Jerusalem and I've interacted with the ultra Orthodox, and I've been with the Orthodox in Brooklyn. Okay. Uh, not that I'm uniquely qualified to comment on it too but as you're talking long i'm, I'm nodding like yes i i don't think you'd hear the word gay okay, in orthodox so, in orthodox judaism and the insular culture that they have and the communities that they have so i, I totally understand how that would happen okay so 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 you understand that for him it was really frightening because oh my goodness yes he did not experience being gay in an orthodox community just as the same way that being gay in an evangelical christian community not, and I'm also not comparing those religions, oh, but I'm just saying not. that there are many, there are religious communities where, there are many communities where it's not okay. He was in a community where it felt particularly dangerous to self-identify as gay. Um, and yet here he was. It was who he was. He was both, and, and he chose Orthodox Judaism. And um, he went through a process and eventually for a conspiracy of circumstances, um, he was called upon to come out. Um, as an Orthodox rabbi, and he did, and he eventually be- he was he became known. He was in this he he he, be- he was in this movie Trembling Before God by Sandy Dubowski, and also wrote his own uh, book um, about reconciling homosexuality with Judaism. Anyway, he kind of became like the he be- he did become the first openly gay Orthodox rabbi, um, and that was a, this gigantic thing about him becoming himself, like life questing. And what happened as a result of that 
is that he's now the head of a nonprofit called The Shell. And their work is to facilitate gay and queer and transgender uh, youth telling their stories to their Orthodox and Jewish communities in order to bring um, reconciliation within the community and to bring acceptance. Um, And so it's this amazing story of a man who became himself, you know, uh, reconciled what seemed to be completely opposite parts of his nature and then that helping the world. So he's, his story is very heroic. It's not to say that we all have to start a nonprofit or that we all have to have these gigantic paradoxes in our, in our natures that we have to bring together. It's, it's, a, it's a story writ large of how all of us can actually find the gift within ourselves and then bring it back to, the, to our communities and actually help. In some cases, what seems bad about ourselves, what we, what we initially label as bad about ourselves, turns out to be the strength and the gift that we can give our communities. Yeah. That's a life quester. Yeah. Well, let's, continuing on the gift that we can give to ourselves or that somebody else can give us and how to be alive. I understand you have a free companion workbook for the book book. Can you just tell us about the how to be alive resources that are supplemental to the book itself? That's right. So there's, so basically, uh, um, I wanted to create a workbook and it serves two purposes. It's, um, you can use it on its own. Like you can download the workbook, how to, the, how to be alive workbook, um, which is at, um, colinbevan.com backslash how to be alive resources. You can find it there. Um, and you can download that workbook and you don't have to, I tried to write it in a way so you don't have to have the book to use it. Of course, it's a richer experience if you actually have the book as well. But either way, you can, you can, if, you, if you don't have access to the book or you can't afford it or whatever, you can use the workbook by itself. Or if you have the book, it's a, it, it provides um, a kind of cliff notes for the book to help you work through the exercises in the book quickly. Um, and not quickly, it's a lifelong process, but to, to, work, <laughs> to work through them more easily. Right on. Yeah. Wow. Holy smokes. I'm, I'm going to just kind of wrap up a great conversation. We were talking before I started recording, and I said, hey, are you ready for a great conversation, Colin? And I was being a little bit presumptuous, of course, but whew, this has been a deuce. I'm going to pause, though, and say, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you would like people to know at this point? I just think it's uh, there are a couple of things that uh, stop us from engaging with the world and making changes in the world or trying to make changes in the world um, and uh, in the way that we might like to. And, and, and one is this uh, feeling that we're, we're not powerful enough. Like I, who am I to try to do something? Um, and just putting one foot in front of the other. Like, so let's say, let's say for example, um, you've been, reading about the harm done to the environment and to workers by the coffee trade, you know, so you don't have to go to South America and go to a farm, start by choosing a brand of coffee that's ethically produced and don't stop there. I'm not saying that, you know, then go to a coffee house that has a relationship with a farmer, with a coffee farmer, a direct trade coffee house and talk to the owner and then Maybe, you know, keep moving on. Keep, don't stop at buying organ. But my point is just start, just like take an action today and then add to that action tomorrow. It's fine. Like the gentle, a gentle approach is fine. Just stay awake to what concerns you. I say this in, in How to Be Alive. Give more energy to what is true for you. Give less energy to what is not true for you. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing is um, don't worry about whether it makes a, big gigantic difference to the world at large just worry about whether it actually feels um right to you and whether it feels better to you to live in line with your values all right and i'm sure people can explore a whole lot more on your websites colinbevan.com or if you'd like people separate from how to be alive if they want to connect more go deeper into your world where should they explore go to colinbevan.com um, I also have an archive of work at noimpactman.com. And um, if you're interested in doing No Impact Weeks, noimpactproject.org. Awesome. Oh, All those things. Huh? Sorry, just to say I'm also on Facebook at Colin Bevan and Twitter at Colin Bevan and Instagram at Colin Bevan too. Okay. You are a lot of places, yes. which I'm very happy about. Thanks. 
Thank you so much, Colin. This was just a fantastic conversation, and I know it's going to deeply impact a lot of people. So I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, Joel. It was really nice talking to you. All right. So who would have thunk it? This how to be alive thing is so much more complex and so much more rewarding than I could have ever imagined. Man, is it clear that you and I need so much more than just water, air, food, shelter, sunlight, all those standard things in order to thrive in the way that Colin was talking about and challenging us to live up to? I am certainly ready for a big challenge, especially we can start small. Just take some little steps. You with me? Even if it's just me and you, let's do something. At the very least, we can help third grade teachers in the UK recycle better, right? Now, remember, Colin's book, How to Be Alive, will have a life of its own starting on January 5, 2016, and I hope you'll consider snagging your own copy. You can find links to his book, all the stuff we spoke about, topic timestamps, takeaways, and more grooviness in the show notes at valueofsimple.com slash SASM090. You will also see information in the show notes about how to support me, this show, and our community via Patreon at valueofsimple.com slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. If you're not already a podcast subscriber and email newsletter getter dude or dudette, or want to leave a brief iTunes review, you will also find links to all that fun stuff at valueofsimple.com slash SASM090. If you want to get more of me in 2016, let us intertwine our thoughts, actions, and smiles, shall we? You can share your lovely face, beautiful brain, and warm heart with me at Twitter, I am at Joel Zeslowski through email via joel at joelzeslowski.com, J-O-E-L-Z-A-S-L-O-F-S-K-Y. That's right. New domain name, baby. And, of course, wherever else we both are. Now, I'm not normally a year in review kind of guy, but this whole 2015 thing that you and I did, that was something special. And really, you know what? (laughs) I know you had something to do with it. You listened to this episode. You listened to the show in general. You let the chatter spark some surprising thoughts, some intentional action. You helped me and yourself be a little more authentic each and every day. Wow. Just, just wow. Think about that for a moment. I mean, theoretically, of course, we could have done 2015 without each other, but goodness gracious, I'm grateful we were together for a journey that keeps getting better. If you got something out of this episode, or maybe you just generally dig the show, share it with some people, please. Now, I'll be back in 2016, and I cannot wait to keep doing life with you. For now, it's time for your partner in simplifying to sign off again. You've just listened to the Smart and Simple Matters podcast with Joel Zaslowski and for the last time, creator of all things Value of Simple. Simple.